We are right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Last week, we looked at the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to look at the whole chapter 2 today. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, you might open them up there right to the middle of your Bible to the prophet Isaiah. If you're in the Psalms, go a little bit more to your right. If you're finding short little funky prophetic names, go a little bit more to your left. You'll find Isaiah right in the middle of it all. If you're here gathering with us, somebody's invited you, and you're not used to handling a Bible, listen, we're so excited that you're here. As you open it up, you'll notice big numbers and small numbers. Those big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Big number two, that's chapter two. And we're going to be looking at all of the little numbers in chapter two. What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were outside playing or at school or perhaps laying in bed at night dreaming about what your future would hold, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be, as many little boys wanted to be, I wanted to be a baseball player. My older brother was a baseball player. My younger brother played baseball. My stepfather, sitting right there, coached us in baseball. We loved to play baseball. And we played not only organized, we played in the front yard. This was back when kids played outside together. We played out in the front yard. We wore base paths in the grass. And when I considered what my future held, I wanted to be Ken Griffey, Jr., Oh, he was my favorite player. And I wanted to swing just like Ken Griffey Jr. And I tried, though Ken Griffey Jr. is a lefty. And if you know anything about baseball, that's okay if you don't. If you know anything about baseball, then you know that righties always have ugly swings. Lefties always have pretty swings. Ken Griffey Jr. was a lefty, and I was a righty. But I tried my best. And you look and you go, that's what I want my future to hold. And that would begin shaping my present. What did you want to be when you grew up? How did that shape your imagination? What you thought about? What you did? What you took interest in? How did that vision of your future shape your present day realities? This is what we find in Isaiah chapter 2. We find an abrupt change of pace from Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1, we see God confronting Israel. He is stinging them by his word, all with the aim of bringing them to see themselves as they really are, to turn from their sin and to trust in him again. So chapter 1 is a heavy chapter. And then we see this hard right turn where all of a sudden it's a glimpse into the future. And what Isaiah is going to do is give a glorious vision of what this future holds. We find a corrupt and unjust and unbelieving Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1. And then at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 2, we see a new Jerusalem. A renewed and restored Jerusalem. And what God is doing 
is he's telling the church, this is what I want you to be when you grow up. This is the glorious vision of your future. And that glorious vision of who I intend you to be should be shaping your life in the present. That's really the big idea of the text. If you want to grasp my sermon in a sentence, it goes something like this. Walk in light of future hope and humble yourself before God. Walk in the light of future hope and humble yourself before God. This is, in fact, the way that the whole chapter is broken up. In verses 1 through 6, or 1 through 5, rather, we're going to see our first point. That is, walk in the light of future hope. That you would walk in the light of future hope. And then, when we pick up in chapter 6, all the way through the end of the chapter, we're going to see our second point. And that is, regard God and humble yourself. Regard God and humble yourself. Let's jump in at the very beginning. Right there at verse 1. We see here that this is the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. If you look all the way back at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Isaiah had a vision. Well, here we get a little bit of a glimpse in verse 1 as to what that vision was. We saw that it was the word that Isaiah saw. Isaiah saw a word. That is, he had been given divine insight into a message that God had chosen him and was commissioning him to preach. He was given a message to deliver. And that message was given by divine revelation. It wasn't originating from him. It was something that was given to him by God. And then we see what that vision is beginning in verse 2 all the way through verse 4. That it shall come to pass, he says, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We see at the very beginning of verse 2 that this message is concerned with the latter days or the last days. This phrase that you see at the beginning there, these latter days, it's a common phrase used by the prophets to refer to the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord is the day when God is going to bring judgment and victory for his people. And we see in the rest of verse 2 and in the beginning of verse 3 what exactly that day looks like. We see specifically that one mountain is going to rise above the rest. Well, what is he talking about? He's using mountains and hills as imagery to, de to describe the worship of men, the worship of the nations. You may recall that, that throughout the historical books, that is 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that it talks often about the high places. The idea in ancient Near Eastern culture was the higher you could get, the closer you would be to deity, and that is where you would establish your worship. And so he's addressing these man-made mountains and these self-exalting hills. But he says that there is a mountain that is going to rise above all of them. It is going to be visible and it is going to be obvious. And that all false worship, all these little mountains and all these little hills, all the religions of men are going to be humbled to nothing in the wake of this one single glorious mountain that exalts itself above all other mountains. And we see at the very end of of verse 2 that all the nations, all the nations are going to flow to it. And that many peoples are going to come and they're going to say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Or Isaiah foresaw a time when the nations will all come to God to be, or all come to the mountain of God to be instructed in the ways of God. I want you to notice the anti-gravitational anomaly At the end of verse 2, look at this. And the nations shall flow to it. To what? To the mountain of the Lord. That is the highest mountain. Isaiah pictures a, a river flowing uphill. That what God promises to do by his word in these last days will be as miraculous as a river flowing up a mountain. And the way that he will do it is by his word. We see here that it is transforming everything. In verse 3, it goes forth from Zion. The word of the Lord from this new Jerusalem that is established. And it is transforming all of those flowing to it. All those coming to it. And they say now, let us, that he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. That it is a supernatural granting of brand new desires in a brand new direction in life. Whereas once the nations had given themselves to false worship, are now sojourning toward the mountain of the Lord to give true worship to the one true God. That is who they want to know. They want to value God and know his word over and above everything. Not only that. Not only will God supernaturally bring the nations to him. Not only will God bring many peoples to him to love him and to, and to love his word and to walk in his ways. But he will also, beginning of verse 4, bring judgment. That he will reign over the nations with perfect justice. No longer will there be disputes, but there will be justice meted out according to his perfect law. And he will decide disputes, he will rule, he will judge, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up swords against nations, and neither shall they learn war anymore. I wonder what your first inclination was when we were confronted with our most recent rash of mass shootings. What about terrorist bombings overseas? Or what about unjust war in the world? Do we think that that is a task for better legislation or perhaps for the United Nations? That if only the nations would come together in a cooperative effort, oh, then we could make progress toward total peace. 
Well, here, Isaiah says the only way that's coming is going to be through the day of the Lord. That he will come and he will establish final peace and every single firearm will be melted down and repurposed into farming tools. That which is used to take life will now become tools that are used to give life. That which was used to dominate will now be used to exercise dominion as we were created to do all the way back in Genesis 1. That he is establishing a new heavens and a new earth. And in the middle of it will be a tree of life. And that tree, according to John and Revelation, will be for the healing of the nations. That is what we see. That God is healed the nations. There is no more war. There is no more violence. There is no more enmity. And all of it has been brought about supernaturally, powerfully by the very word that he used to create all things and is now using to recreate all things and to make all things new. This is what God is saying through Isaiah what I want my people to look like when they grow up. This is what I want them to be. I want them to be enraptured with my glory. I want them to be totally dependent on my law, trusting of walking with me and ruling with me. And there will be no more tears and no more war. There will be peace and goodwill among Men. What we see in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, is the goal of the gospel being realized. God ruling over the nations in justice and universal peace and goodwill among men. This, brothers and sisters, is the hope of every single voter in our nation. This is the hope of every single soul on this planet that longs to see pain removed, justice established, and peace permeate everything. And he's entrusted us with the very gospel that will bring it about by the power of Christ, in part now and fully when he returns. How are we to think about this, though? This is a glorious glimpse of the future, of supernatural power, of God turning the course of history, of the flow of people not running away from the mountain of the Lord, but the flow of people running up to the mountain of the Lord in such a way that they love Him and worship Him and, and serve Him. What does this have to do with us? What are we to walk away with? Well, verse 5 tells us, O house of Jacob, in light of this, in light of this word that I've seen, in light of this vision, oh, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. You who have been walking in darkness, God has pulled back the blinds and he has given you a new picture of the future. Let us now walk in the light of what he has shown us. And what we need to realize as we do, brothers and sisters, 
is that the future is now. What do I mean by that? Isaiah was looking forward to the future. But when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament looks back and tells us that the future has arrived. And then when Jesus came to earth, this latter-day plan of God was inaugurated. That's why the author to the Hebrews tells us at the beginning of his letter, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets like Isaiah. But in these last days, see verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son. We are right now in 2020 or 19, whatever year it is. We are right now in the final phase of the glorious plan of the redemption that God conceived before the foundation of the world. And the essence of that plan is his glory in the salvation of sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It is, verse 2, all of the nations, and it is, beginning of verse 3, many peoples flowing to the mountain of the Lord. And God began that miracle. He inaugurated it when Christ came, and he began this miracle at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. That after he had been crucified and he had been raised, he saw his disciples once again and he commissioned them that you will take the gospel beginning here in Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives to intercede for his people and where he would send his spirit to empower us for the mission that he has now created for the church. And there in Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter says, quoting Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all nations, many peoples. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The miracle of Isaiah 2 was inaugurated by Christ in his incarnation. It was set into motion through the preaching of his apostles. And it continues today through the missionary enterprise of the church to the nations. And it will be one day consummated when Christ returns to judge and to establish perfect peace in a new Jerusalem that will be set up as the new cosmopolitan capital of a new heavens and a new earth. We are caught in the middle of that. Did you know that when you were brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, that that is what he called you into? That that is the glorious future that now controls your present? We are not merely a people living in the present looking forward to the future. We are a future people who are sojourning in the present. We are between two worlds. We are between the already and the not yet. That we live between this age and the age to come. Between that which has been inaugurated by Christ and the future consummation of all things in Christ. And he has given us an amazing new identity. And he has given us a really important mission. 
when you consider that first point, that he's given us a new identity, what that means is that the power of God for salvation is not something that we are waiting to be brought about in our lives at Christ's return at the resurrection. No, rather, it is something that has already begun. That's why Paul says, you are a new creation. Therefore, the new has come and the old has passed away. There is something altogether new about you. That when God in his grace brought you to repent and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you were recreated. You were reborn. That's why John chapter 3 talks about it being born again. It's like a second birth. And that birth gives way to all new spiritual realities. Whereas once you were alienated and an enemy of God, now you are counted as his friend. But not only that, you have been united to Christ. And in being united to Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, his life has become your life. And that future reality where sin will be no more has already begun breaking into the present in your own life and in the community of the church. This is the reality of the church. It is a counter-cultural, counter-historical community. It is an eschatological people. You say, what are you talking about? It's your $10 word for the day, eschatology. This means the last things, that we are a people of a final day, and that is already broken into our present. That not only are we new creations, but we no longer consider ourselves according to the flesh, Paul says. We don't even consider Christ according to the flesh anymore. We see him with new eyes and we see one another with new eyes. That's why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that in view of our glorious justification of the fact that we have all been found to be sinners at the foot of the cross and that in being united to Christ, we have given, been given his righteousness. Oh, now we look at one another and we don't see men and women. We don't see white and black and brown, though those things are certainly true by God's providence. We see first and foremost that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. And so one of the questions that we have to ask about what does it mean to be the church is can our community only be explained by the death and the resurrection of a man who has ascended to the right hand of the Father? Is the only thing that can explain the nature of our community and the nature of our unity and the nature of our service and the nature of our love and the nature of our humility, the fact that a man rose from the dead? No other explanation, and it can't be found anywhere else. We are not simply rules followers. You can go to the American Legion for that. You can go to the synagogue for that. What makes the church of Jesus Christ different is the power of the gospel breaking into the present to transform us into the image of Christ as we will be one day fully when he comes. We have a new identity. And God has called us to walk in light of that reality. That's why God's people should never have racism named among them. There should never be prejudice among God's people. 
That is why when God's people are considered, they should never be considering cultivating for themselves political power and hoarding for themselves financial gain, thinking that that will somehow be what brings about God's kingdom. I don't care if you're the right-hand man to the president. That is not the way that God has ordained his kingdom to come about and for his glory to fill the earth. It is through the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. That is what we see in Isaiah chapter 2. Is that reality has been inaugurated now in these last days as God has spoken to us through his son that we are seeing his glory fill the earth and it will one day upon Christ's return be established fully and finally where sin will be done away with forever. His enemies will be judged and peace and goodwill will be established among men forever. We are the glorious foretaste of that. The church is the three-dimensional prophecy of that glorious day. And that, that vision of what God wants us to be when we grow up is meant to shape our lives today. Our discipleship today. Our evangelism today. We are a future people living in the present, not a present people looking forward to the future merely. And that means that we not only have a new identity, we also have an important mission. When you get to the very end of Revelation, this glorious vision, which really is just an expansion of what we see here in Isaiah chapter 2 and elsewhere in Isaiah's prophecy. But when you get to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, and you have this glorious vision of a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and the healing of the nations and all things being made new and Christ wiping away every tear and his people being gathered and seeing him face to face. The glorious benediction at the end of Paul's vision. You can see in verse 17 that the spirit and the bride say Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. The vision that you have in Genesis 22 is of the nations and of many people streaming upwards to the mountain of God. And as they sojourn, to the mountain of the house of the Lord, they are, as they come, saying to those around them, come. And they are doing so in the power of the Spirit, so that the outcome that God has ordained from before the foundations of the world will come to pass by the means that he himself has appointed. Come. That is at the very heart of the mission of the church. I'm all about building clean wells. I'm all about building orphanages. Christians should be at the front end of all of that all over the world. But because we believe that there is something better than human flourishing in this life, and because we believe that there is something worse than death, our primary mission is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we go to all nations with the Spirit and we say, come. And all those who hear as they come, they say, come. And over time, a throng begins to form, all sojourning to the mountain of the house of the Lord. 
This is the mission of the church. It's come. The spirit and the bride, the bride of Christ, the church, say come. Brothers and sisters, we can be sure. As sure as what we see on Isaiah 2, that the mission of the church as appointed by God and the fulfillment of the ends for which he has created all things will come to pass. God is undefeated. His purposes are invincible. His promises are indestructible. And every single jot and tittle, every single iota will come to pass. And we can take that to the bank. And so you may consider, for instance, then we got young Alex wanting to do missions over in some of the hardest parts of the world, perhaps Northern Africa, that 1040 window, that, that area that is most hostile to Christ. And you may look at an area like that in the world and you go, ain't no way the gospel's breaking in there. Ain't no way church is getting planted there. Ain't no way none of that happening. Isaiah chapter two says differently. It will be all nations, people from every tribe and every tongue and every in every nation, it will not just be some who seem to be a little bit more receptive to the gospel. It will be all nations. That our missionary enterprise, even in the hardest places in the world, is driven by the confidence that is influenced by Isaiah chapter 2. And that is that the word of God cannot fail and the purposes of God will come to pass. And if I've got to die, I've got to die. That's okay. I just get more of Jesus a lot sooner than the rest of you guys. But I do so fully with this confidence, not in my own wisdom, not in my own methods, but of the word of the Lord that sounds forth from Jerusalem. Do you believe that? Oh, friends, I would love to say that this church, is, this is what we have given our lives to as a church, and in part we have, but we need to continue to grow in grace in this way. That the glorious vision of this future, of our new identity in this important mission would continue to grip us more and more and more. But in order for that to happen, God in his grace has to humble us because we are still far too proud. And that's what we see in the rest of the chapter. We're going to see in verses 6 through the end of verse 21, regard God and humble yourself. There in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see really two kind of subpoints here. In verses 6 through 9, we're going to see bloated pride. And then we're going to see in verses 10 through 21, the proud brought low. So bloated pride, verses 6 through 9, and then we're going to see the proud brought low in verses 10 through 21. Notice this in verse 6. It begins with God rejecting his people. And then the section ends in verse 9 with God not forgiving his people. One commentator said that this, these two verses form an iron band of hopelessness for those that are described in verses 7 through 9. 
And those described in verses 7 through 9 are the people of God, the very people that had received his word, that had been redeemed by his grace, and yet seems to have forgotten them and turned his back on them. You notice in verses 6 and 7 and 8, that word full, filled, 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 God's people have become bloated with pride. They become bloated, verse 6, with worldly wisdom. They're full of things from the east. Fortune tellers, striking hands, that is, coming to agreement with the children of foreigners. Beginning of verse 7, they're not only bloated with worldly wisdom, but they're bloated with hoarded wealth. Filled with silver and gold, no end to their treasures. It's not used for the sake of the glory of God. It's used for their own security and for their own enjoyment. Not only are they bloated with wealth, but they're also, second half of verse 7, bloated with power. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Verse 8, they're bloated with idolatry. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands and to what their own fingers have made. Here Isaiah, and he's going to do it all over his prophecy, Isaiah is poking fun at the absurdity of their idolatry. You take your own hands, you who were created, and you create this thing, and then you bow down and worship that thing as if the thing you created can now redeem you. That's crazy. But that's idolatry. And so they have become bloated with worldly wisdom and hoarded wealth and political power and idolatry. Does that sound very familiar to today's evangelicalism? Unfortunately. As we seek to make peace with worldly ideologies, as we seek to gather for ourselves wealth, thinking that God has promised prosperity in this life, as we seek to cultivate for ourselves power through political means, and as we continue to build up according to pragmatism and our own efforts, things that work contrary to the means of grace God has provided. Friends, this isn't just a, an old, old message for an old, old people. This message is for us, to warn us by God's grace. And what you're going to see here in verses 6 through 9 is a contrast between this old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, and the new Jerusalem in verses 2 through 4. We saw in that first section that the entire world will be drawn to Zion, but here we see God's people are drawn to the world. And there in that first section, we see that the world will seek spiritual benefit. But here in this section, beginning of verse 7, we see that God's people hoard material benefit. There in that first section, we see that the world is going to come to Zion for peace. But there at the second part of verse 7, we see that God's people arm themselves against the world. We see there in verse 8, that the, or at this first section, that the world will seek to know the true God. But here in verse 8, God's people, well, they're inventing for themselves false gods. We see in that first section that the world is going to be received by God. But we see in verse 6 and in verse 9 that God's people are rejected by God. That God's people, this old Jerusalem, 
has become the antithesis of the very thing and, and of the very greatness that he has called them and redeemed them for. They look more like the world than they do like a glorious and redeemed people. That they are bloated with pride. And so God's people have drifted so far from God's ideal that Isaiah concludes then in verse 9 that forgiveness, oh, that must be unthinkable. He's not commanding God not to think them. Hebrew imperatives can be not just taken as commands, but as implied suggestions. That, That what Isaiah is saying is that it is utterly unthinkable that you could forgive such a people. That their sin is just too great, which is what makes the message of Isaiah so wonderful. Because God will redeem for himself a people by his righteousness. And so here we've seen that pride has bloated God's people. But we're going to see in verse 10 all the way through the end of the chapter that that God in his glory is going to bring the proud low. Just look at this beginning in verse 10. Glance all the way through verse 21. And I want you to see if you see a phrase show up over and over and over. Ten times you'll see one phrase. Do you see it? Begins in verse 12. Against all. Against all, against all, against all, against every, against every, against all. Everything in the world that exalts itself against God will be brought low when his kingdom comes. And we see in verse 11 and again in verse 17 that the Lord alone will be exalted. But why is it that God insists that he alone be exalted on that day? Is it because God is some kind of megalomaniac who can't stand to see others succeed and so always needs to be knocking people down? No, you've got to understand that God must ultimately be for God if God is to be for us. God's glory entails both his happiness in himself and consequently our happiness in him. So it can't be because God is some kind of megalomaniac out on a power trip. No, is it, is it perhaps because God feels threatened by us that he just needs to squash any threats? No, the Bible says, Psalm 113, the Lord is high above the nations, his glory above the heavens. We are not a threat to God. He is an insecure when he insists upon the triumph of his glory alone. And so what is it that happens then? Why do we have such a hard time with the truths of Isaiah 2? Of God exalting himself alone. Of being against all forms of pride, including our own. Of God coming against us. What happens when... You make what you think are really great plans for your life. And then God breaks them. That he frustrates them. What about when you find yourself facing the Lord's discipline through just bitter circumstances in your life, deep conviction of sin, consequences of sin? You think you've done enough for him to spare the rod, perhaps. But God doesn't spare the rod. He continues to apply pressure. What do you think then? 
How do you respond when another believer enters into that disappointment and that pain that you're experiencing to carefully and lovingly remind you that God intends all these things for good and for his glory? Do you take that as unloving? Do you consider that to be unsympathetic, perhaps? Do you bristle? Do you roll your eyes? Do you dismiss their comment as just trite or cliche? See, the problem is that we often think that God's glory and our good really don't go together. We mistakenly think that God is, that if God is ultimately for God, and God being for God leads God to be against us, as we see here in Isaiah 2, and to bring us low, as we see here in Isaiah 2, then God must not be for us after all. That, according to Isaiah, is at the very heart of lofty pride. God's love for his own glory and his love for us is one love. And that love is drawing God toward that final day when we will leave behind all of our tiny mountains and hills of self-worship and we will be forever happy with his glory alone. Jonathan Edwards says this, God is glorified and only when his glory's being seen, not only when his glory's being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they should only see it. His glory is then received with the whole soul, not by the understanding of the heart. God made the whole world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory. What Isaiah is telling us is strip away all of your surface problems. What you think are your biggest problems are not ultimately your biggest problems, though they may, in fact, be problems. They're not your biggest problems. Our deepest and our biggest problem is that we arrogantly perceive that God's glory is a threat when, in fact, his glory is simply another word for heaven. Isaiah is telling us that, that God has set aside a day on the calendar of human history to destroy with terrible finality every proud barrier to the only true joy that exists for the human heart. Isaiah is telling us that the Lord alone will be exalted on that day and that this is the best news imaginable. Because pride deceives us into assembling idol-filled lives. That's what we see picking up in verse 18. That the idols that we build, these little mountains, these little hills, will utterly pass away. People will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Pride deceives us 
into assembling idol-filled lives because idolatry gives us a feeling of power and control. Because our idols don't ultimately make us, according to verse 20, we make them. We make them, we can control them, and with the right amount of effort, with the right amount of, of activity and deeds and religious workings, of commitment and hard work or whatever, we can make them work for us. And notice that these things aren't inherently evil things, they're good things. It's silver and gold. Those things were, were present before sin ever came into the world. They were part of God's glory being displayed in creation. These are good things, but they've been turned into ultimate things. What kind of good things can we turn into ultimate things? The approval of our spouse, the behavior of our children, our performance in school, the affection or perhaps one day the attaining of a spouse if we're single, our own ministries, the way that we know that if those things are idols, if we grow discouraged when they fail to make good on their promises to us. We put all the effort into our ministry and the numbers never come. We put all of our effort into our spouse and our marriage that we know how to do. And yet it's still marked by difficulty and challenges and conflict. We put all of our hope into the behavior of our children and they still walk down the aisle of Target. Knock everything off the aisle and then throw a fit when we suggest that what they did isn't revealing the righteousness of God. That when we take a job that think will make us fulfilled and happy and find out it does anything but. That when we make plans and God breaks plans and we find ourselves distressed and anxious, those things may very well be little mountains and hills that we've constructed to exalt ourselves in self-worship. And God is good to come against us. God is good to bring us low. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and treasuring his righteousness in the grace of God given to us in him, if we are to go to continue to grow in walking by the Spirit and not according to the deeds of the flesh. God needs to come against us. That according to His Word, He needs to confront us. Because as long as we think that His glory is an obstacle to work around in order to fulfill what we think is the ideal version of our life, that will only bring disappointment and death. That's what we saw in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 30, you remember? And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. Our own brilliance and our own strength, unhitched from the glory of God, will only bring death. It'll set, it'll burn down everything around you. Your family, your ministry, your children, it will burn down everything. Your own strength is tender, or the strong or tender, his work's a spark. 
That's what self-sufficiency does, according to Isaiah. And so pride deceives us. But God's glory is going to expose the folly of our pride on that day. Those idols of silver and gold are going to be thrown away like trash to the moles and the bats. I love that. That's just good poetry. We think moles and bats. Thrown away to the moles and the bats. These idols are precious. They're like hard-won silver and gold. That's why we prize them. And that's why we white-knuckle them. And that's why we don't want to give them up. We've worked hard for them. This truth is portrayed brilliantly by Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. Missy Henson, I already know what you're thinking. Always give me a hard time for quoting Tolkien too much. But he's brilliant. That everyone who wears the golden ring of power morphs into something subhuman like Gollum. Who cherishes it as my precious. And he can't give it up. And in order for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring has to be thrown into the fire of Mount Doom and it needs to be destroyed forever. Brothers and sisters, the key to true happiness is not only what we lay hold of, but it's also in what we throw away. Paul wrote, I have suffered the loss of things, of a good reputation, of respect among peers, of religious pedigree, of one-upsmanship on those who had accomplished nowhere near what he had accomplished, all of these things that he had labored for all of his life, he says, I count them all as loss, as scubula, as poo-poo, literally. That they're dung to me in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's talking about scales he goes, listen, if I've got to give up everything and all I get is Jesus, that's a net win. That is what Isaiah is trying to lead these people to see. Why are you running to the world? You have everything you need in God. He has given you his very presence and his glory. And his glory and your happiness are one and the same. Why do you doubt that? And so what golden idols do we cherish as essential to our happiness? What is it that we have to throw away to possess the one treasure that we cannot live without, that is Christ? The one who does not make us subhuman. Christ never turns us into golems, but makes us truly human as he is. That when he becomes precious to us, we become the very radiance of the glory of God in the world. We become a fragrance in worship to Him. We become a light in a dark and perverse generation. That is what happens when we become more like Christ. When we trust in Him and love Him and seek to become more like Him. Oh, but our own self-exaltation, our own little mountains and hills will always dehumanize us and everyone around us. This is what happened to me yesterday. As I went to a baseball game at 9, a volleyball game at 11, and then another back-to-back -back volleyball game later that afternoon, then came home and tried to nap but couldn't because my two-year-old wouldn't nap, and by the late afternoon, I was grumbly. 
because everything was about everybody else and nothing about this day was about me. And I really needed the day to be about me at some point. And I snap at my kids. I'm gruff with my wife. And I just pout and grumble and throw a fit like a toddler. Because I wasn't ultimately doing all things to the glory of God. I believe that God's glory and my happiness were at odds. I needed something other than God and His glorious grace to be happy. That is idolatry. And that is what God in His goodness seeks to expose as He comes against us and to bring us low so that we might, according to verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? It is God's grace to expose the folly of our false worship. And so I wonder, as we hear about the terror of the Lord in verses 10 and verses 19 and verses 21, do we feel uneasy? Does that make us uneasy? We should. I think we should be uneasy. We might begin to think about the worst things that could happen we might think about what we might lose. We might think about what we talked about last week in Isaiah 1, that the path of repentance may actually be a painful and perhaps an embarrassing path, and that's really scary. But the worst that can happen is not the terror of the Lord deconstructing the whole world. The worst thing that can happen is not the losing of a savings account or losing your health or even losing face. The worst thing that can happen is the loss of delight in the glory of God alone. And the best thing that can happen to us is to be awakened to His glory as our joy, even if God has to humble us to experience it. That if God is not ultimately for God, God cannot be for us. But since God is for God, he brings us low and he sets himself against our pride so that we can experience the breakthrough of verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? And we can begin walking in the freedom of verse 5. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And we can begin to grow into what God wants us to be when we get big. Of the glorious ideal version of the future. That if we are going to be controlled by that, he's got to humble us in the present. And he's good to do it. Because this is where our happiness lies. In this glorious vision of the future and of the glory of God. And of him being exalted alone above and over all things. Even those things in your own life. He is good to come against you. And he is good to bring you low. So that you might rejoice in his glory.